This is the Lead to Lead podcast, where we explore the realm of leadership through the lens of faith. Here's your host, Leah Haygood. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lead to Lead podcast. My name is Leah and I am your grateful host. And today is a very special day. It is going to be the first installment of a little trilogy I've planned out called Leadership Lessons from Netflix. And I wanted to do this because right now, as I'm recording this, we are in a weird season as a nation, as a world of dealing with a a pandemic within our lifetime. The effects of COVID-19 are unprecedented and it's very weird to see this. I'm thankful for where we are currently. Um, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. And right now we're, we're actually looking okay um, but I know places like California and New York, especially, uh, their people are hurting. Not only that, they're scared. But I wanted to share something that was a little bit more lighthearted in the midst of all this and some truths that we could be applying to our lives, whether you're a leader or not. I know you're at home. <laughs> We've been asked to stay home um, for the betterment of our society by our local governments. And I'm, I'm thankful for the proactivity of the government so far. With that, I want to encourage you to do what's best for your family, do what's best for your community, and wash your hands, be smart. It's okay to take a drive. It's okay to do that. But don't be taking your kids out everywhere and just, you can't be too cautious in these moments in time. And uh, I just want to encourage you that this is a season. It's very easy for me to get kind of sucked into my own hamster wheel of worry and anxiety and all those sorts of things. So in an attempt to bring some joy or some lighthearted conversation to you through this podcast, I wanted to talk about Netflix. And I wanted to create this podcast from the beginning talking about leadership and how All of us have some sort of untapped potential within us, and you can find those different aspects of leadership in pretty much everything, even in the most sinful, hateful things in the world. You can find something to take away from that. There's always going to be a learning point. Like I said, this is going to be a trilogy called Leadership Lessons from Netflix, and I'm going to talk about three different shows that I have watched over the past few years or maybe some that I've just stumbled upon recently. Um, I'm not going to tell you all three, but I will tell you the first one that we are going to talk about today. The first one is called The Chef's Table. I am a huge fan of documentaries. I'm the nerd that goes on Netflix and says, oh, what kind of documentaries do they have going on? And also, by the way, one of the shows I will not be talking about is Tiger King. I'm just going to bust your bubble right there. I did get sucked into it. I did binge watch the whole thing. However, I'm not going to spend 45 minutes of your time talking about Tiger King and how ridiculous it was. But anyway, um, I love documentaries because I like to hear stories of real people. And with Chef's Table in particular, I'll give you a synopsis of kind of what the idea is about Chef's Table. It's a collection of documentaries of world-renowned chefs across the globe who share their story from their childhood to how they started cooking, where their motivation came from, and to where they are now. And what's interesting is that I think this has been, uh, I think they've had six series so far. 
uh, either six or seven, I can't remember. But it's so interesting how each one of them has their own unique backstory. A lot of these people, the idea of them being a chef was never even on the forefront of their mind, which is so amazing to see. Uh, like they start at the beginning, like showing them the different dishes that they're known for. And like, you look at this food and now I, I grew up in the South. So avant-garde kind of dishes, if you're familiar with that, it's very technical, advanced preparation of food and presented in such a way that's like, oh my gosh, I, I don't even want to eat it. It's just that beautiful. But growing up in the South, it's like food, like you know, Thanksgiving, holidays, birthdays, you're going to chow down. Like, you don't really care how fancy it looks. You just want to be full. So it's more about quantity than quality, <laughs> unfortunately. So to see some of these plates of food that these chefs were making is unbelievable. And then there's also these chefs that are featured that have this home cook kind of vibe to them. And there's still beauty in that, in the simplicity of taking dishes that have been made for hundreds of years and adding a little twist, making a little, a little modern, and the transformation that that dish is now overtaken, which is really cool. But I want to spend the next several minutes that I have your attention, that I'm in your earbuds right now, <laughs> to talk about three chefs in particular that their stories stuck out to me. And the first one is a lady by the name of Christina Martinez. Now, she is known for making barbacoa. And I say it like that because I like to use my accent. But um, barbacoa is lamb that is cooked in a pit. Uh, it's traditionally made in Mexico. I think she's from the Yucatan Peninsula area, area of Mexico. Her father taught her how to cook it. Basically, they... Um, marinate the lamb with sour orange. I think in Spanish it's um, naranja alegría. So it's very strong, acidic orange, but it basically tenderizes the meat as it's cooking. But basically they put, they make a fire and then they put a pot with the lamb and the sour orange. They put it in a pit and they seal it off for several, several hours, pretty much an all-day thing. And basically... They don't touch it until it's ready to come out, which is an act of faith right there. <laughs> like to see a product that you literally touched eight hours ago and hoping, fingers crossed, it comes out good, but it's this amazing food. Um, but what's interesting is her background. So like I said, she grew up in Mexico. She learned from her father how to make this. So the idea of making barbacoa was such a tradition in her family and her heart was in it. She got married at a very young age, at 15. I think she was forced to get married to this particular man. And this man and his family pretty much put her to work. Over the course of time, she was physically abused by this man. And she felt trapped. Um, she did have a daughter, and her name was Carla. And she did not want the life that she was living for her daughter. So what she did, she made up in her mind to escape. She successfully jumped the Mexican border into the United States illegally. But she did it with the motive of trying to have a better life for her daughter. She essentially met up with this man who was known as the Coyote, who was known for getting men and women across the border. She spent like 10 or 15 days in the desert, no food, 
just unbelievable circumstances. Um, and she made it. And you fast forward from there to, uh, it doesn't really talk about how she made the jump to Philadelphia, but she ends up in Philadelphia, which is a crazy distance away. No idea how she gets there, but she ends up getting some jobs in restaurants. She met her husband, uh, her now husband, um, who was an American. She was like, oh my goodness, I have an American boyfriend. And um, But she met him at the restaurant and and all the money that she was making from the restaurant, I mean, other than her living expenses there, she was sending back to her daughter in Mexico. And what's crazy is, like, Christina cannot go back to Mexico because they there's some stipulation where they can't give her a green card, even though she's married to an American citizen. So she's literally stuck in Philadelphia while her daughter's in Mexico. And there's just a lot of red tape, which is very interesting. But... She began cooking barbacoa. She told her husband um, ab- about this dish, and he was very interested in Mexican culture. Started, like he said, he was watching telenovelas, trying to improve his Spanish so he could talk to her and her language. And what they started doing was cooking barbacoa in their apartment. And on Sundays, they would have this huge flock of people come to their house to have barbacoa and the landlords got mad and they're like, you know what, why don't we start a restaurant? So sure enough, Christina and her husband Ben opened this restaurant called South Philly Barbacoa, which is like, you don't think of good Mexican food in Philadelphia. (laughs) It's just so interesting how, it's just incredible how she was able to persevere through certain things. I'm not going to go into the ins and outs talking about immigration and immigration rights and all that, but it is so admirable to see someone who didn't necessarily want to become a chef, but she's featured in this documentary for her boldness and her tenacity, and food is merely just a, a player in this. Christina's story is so admirable and inspirational because she's literally wanting to share a dish that pulls on her heartstrings, that shines a light on her culture, and she's able to do that. Even throughout all of the struggles that she has been facing pretty much her whole life, at least for the past couple decades, which is just incredible to hear about that. The next chef I want to talk about now is a man by the name of Will Goldfarb. I love that Chef Table, they did a specific season, I think it was the fourth one, where it featured only pastry chefs. So any kind of dessert-making wonderkind, you know, they were featured in this. So Will Goldfarb was one of those guys. Very different background compared to Christina. Will grew up in Long Island in the an upper middle class family. And he was wanting to go to school initially for to be a lawyer, from what he said. And he got involved in the restaurant scene somehow, I don't exactly remember. But uh, he found out that he had a love for pastry and making desserts and that sort of thing. Um, Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier about the avant garde sort of stuff. It's very experimental, off the wall kind of ideas, anything that you look at it and you're like, that's not food. <laughs> at least that's my thought. Maybe it's just my uncultured swineness coming out, but but whatever. Uh, so what's cool about Will is that he got to work all over Europe, and he eventually landed a job at 
one of the most incredible restaurants in the early 2000s called El Bulli, which was in Spain. And it was ran by a couple of brothers. It was Ferran and Albert Adria. I hope I completely didn't butcher their names. But Ferran was basically the the head chef, and Albert was in charge of pastry and the creative team and all that. And so they were known as one of the big pioneers of avant-garde food. So Will kind of takes a lot of his perspective about food from them just because he learned so much technique from them. So he was there, I believe, for a year or so and then came back to New York to try to get a job as a pastry chef in some of the restaurants around there. And he was trying some really funky things. He said a lot of sensory deprivation, which is a fancy way of saying his customers or guests would wear like blindfolds so they couldn't see what they were eating or that sort of thing. He said that they were making dishes that you would eat through a syringe, which is kind of funky and a little bit like Dexter's laboratory to me. So, and it just didn't work. And so he was let go from that position. And then he found another job where he was trying to to have that same kind of mentality. He talks about this dish. It was called A Day at the Beach, which it was featuring, like, he was talking about carbonating fat. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but doing that and then um, a ginger beer gel. I'm like, all this doesn't sound very good to me. It, he's, he just said it was very had good imagery and it looked nice. But he got one of the most worst reviews, I think, by someone either in the New Yorker or the New York Times, one of the big newspapers in New York. And they pretty much told him, said, this guy is the worst hire of the year. And so he knew right then and there that when his bosses were going to approach him, he knew that he was getting fired and he knew why he was getting fired. And he was just kind of in a mode of, I've just failed so I'm just going to sit here in failure for a little while. He said it took him a year to finally get out of it. It was right around that year that he was approached by a couple guys who had a concept for a restaurant that only served dessert, which sounds amazing to me. And I love the name for it. It was Room for Dessert, and the four was actually the number. It was really cool. And they opened it, and it was wildly successful. He said that... He had cars picking him up. He was pretty much in the newspaper every day. He was doing interviews every day. So talk about a transformation from being the worst hire of the year to wild success and fame within a year's time. How do you handle that? You know, according to him, neither Will nor his bosses were handling the attention that Will was getting very well. And he admits that in his interview. From what I take from it, he had an ego and was flaunting. He thought he was a bomb.com. And I'm guessing there was some jealousy. And his bosses said, you know what? We're going to close the restaurant. And Will was gutted. He said, uh, he, said he couldn't believe it, that they were just going to shut the whole thing down because of his success. And so Will goes to the extreme. He's like, he says, you know what? I'm out of here. He literally flies to Indonesia and lands in Bali. Of all places, you're like, Bali? Why would he go to Bali? Well, throughout this whole episode of him, 
he mentions all the things that Bali grows. Things like cinnamon, chocolate, a thing called palm sugar, which is apparently a renewable source of sugar. I didn't realize that was such a thing, but it's very prevalent in their style of cooking. I think they grow nutmeg as well. And his point is, if you want to be the best chef in the world, you want to have the freshest ingredients. And for pastry chefs, it's pretty typical to say that the best is what comes out of a box. But really, the best is right here in Bali. I can get fresh chocolate by some people that are climbing up cocoa trees and bringing it back to this place and harvesting fresh cocoa beans. And I have fresh chocolate at my dispense every day, which is incredible. So what he did when he moved out to Bali was he reopened Room for Dessert. And it has been another wild success. But the difference is, he he notes that when he was in New York, it was all about the fame. It was all about the drive and the go and the accolades and all that. Whereas living in Bali, he says they kind of see through the bullcrap. They are not all about the frills and things, and they're very honest, but it's also very humbling. And he said, moving to Bali caused me to prioritize what I valued. He's successful. He said, I'm so much more happier, more content, and I'm able to do what I love, which is really cool. And the last chef I want to talk about, he kind of hits home because this guy, he had huge success in Charleston, South Carolina, which is really cool. His name is Sean Brock. And his main focus was resurrecting Southern foods, such as collard greens, cornbread, harvesting beans and vegetables from a garden, pickling things. And I'm like, oh man, you're you're speaking my language because I had grandparents who were pretty avid gardeners in, in their heyday. And we grew up where people at church would sometimes bring a bag of tomatoes to you just because that, oh, well, I was just thinking about you. And there's just a, a way of showing affection and saying, hey, I care about your neighbor, which is kind of cool. And I think Sean's whole motivation is that if we don't continue to use these foods, they're just going to go away because America, it's true. We live in a culture of instant packaging. We want it now. We want it the quickest way possible and the cheapest way possible. Whereas good things really take time. And Sean really talks about this in his in his interview. Let me give you a little bit of backstory about him. He grew up, he said he grew up in the coal fields of Virginia. His dad, I believe, worked in the coal fields as well. He said the one thing that he knew about his father was that he lived hard, but he worked hard. He was essentially a workaholic, but he loved his family and he loved life. I love how Sean, he says he remembers his dad having steaks like four nights a week, which is like, especially back then, that was in the 70s, I believe late 70s, early 80s, that you're living high on the hog if you're eating steaks over half the week. However, his father died at the age of 39 from a heart attack. 39, which is so young for a heart attack. He tells you that at the beginning of the video, and it kind of sets the framework for the whole interview, and you'll understand in a few minutes once I tell you the rest of his story. Um, Once his father died, he moved in with his grandma, and that's where he learned 
farming, and preserving. He said, if we ate it, we had already grown it or preserved it. There was no like going to restaurants or anything. And he said, I fell in love with dirt. How often do we say that? (laughs) Usually we think of dirt as lowly, as unvaluable. But here he's saying, I fell in love with dirt because I know good things come from dirt. That seeds can be grown in dirt. So hang on to that. Write that down. When he moved in with his grandmother, he obviously grew up there, and he talks about his first experience getting a job in a kitchen. And he said, there was heavy metal music playing so loud in the kitchen. It was just so rambunctious. He said there was a smoking room in the kitchen. <laughs> like, I remember when I was younger that they had, like, smoking sections, like at Applebee's. You go, like, oh, table for four, and they said, oh, smoking or none. Now that's not a thing. There's no smoking section ever. But he said at this restaurant, it was like inside the kitchen, which I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) that is nuts. He also said that he would be cooking in like he remember grease would or hot oil would splash on his arms and he had these burn victim uh, burns on his arms and people would think that he was getting abused. And he said proudly, I would say, no, I'm, I'm a chef. I'm a cook. And that's immediately, he said he was sucked in to becoming a chef. And he talks about how he wanted to be in the environment of where the best chefs were. So he had the idea to move to Charleston, South Carolina. And he said that once he got here, he had never seen restaurants so nice and so refined. And it was just a whole new ball game. What's interesting, I think between the time he initially moved to Charleston, he did get a job in Nashville at a place called the Hermitage Hotel It was his first head chef job, and, you know, he was able to plan the menu. He was able to kind of flex his culinary muscles, so to speak. And so they were opening up on Valentine's Day. He said they had booked 250 people, and he said, I think we fed about 50 of them. And he goes to say just food was overcooked. Things were thrown in the trash. They had to—it was just a mess. It was just chaos in the kitchen. And he said he could see his bosses, the people that hired him to do this job well, and they're just in disbelief. He said, I've never wanted to quit something so bad in my life. But he got up the next day and went and spoke with his bosses. And this is what he said verbatim. I won't take another day off until we get a good review. Now that is dangerous (laughs) because... It's one thing to work hard and be diligent. It's another thing to try and try and strive for perfection in everything. And he goes on to talk about how he literally did not leave the kitchen. He fell asleep under tables using mop heads as pillows. When people in the kitchen were asking for days off, he said he would get so mad because he couldn't understand why they weren't as sold out on being the best as he was. And so he got super frustrated and he said, I did 10 months of that. 10 months, y'all. That's like 300 days, roughly, of straight working. And he said the food critics were coming to the restaurant. And they went to the restaurant. And he said that he sat outside that night till about 4 or 5 in the morning in front of the newspaper printing press, waiting, just waiting for that review to come out. And sure enough, it was an incredible review. They said it was flawless. It was 
perfect. And he's like, all right, this is cemented the thought that if I want to be the best, I have to do everything myself and I have to do it my way, 150%, no exceptions. That's all I'm going to live for is working. Flash forward a few years where he's in Charleston. He took the job of being the head chef of a high-end restaurant called McCready's. And it's this high-end southern food sort of thing. And he is successful with that and is resurrecting these ingredients. Like, he's showing me some of the stuff that he's working with, trying to bring back okra and finding the West African roots behind it, as well as the rice that they grew so many years ago that has just gone either dormant, it's extinct, or nobody's using it. So he's trying to resurrect these critical crops that back in the 18th century were so essential to the economy in that area. He's wanting to bring it back. And I think the reason why it had started to die was because in Charleston... It was a huge place for slaves, plantation, and there was such a stigma on okra and these sort of beans and rice, and anybody who worked in the fields was typically a slave. And once they were free, they they got out of Dodge. They didn't want to deal with that. And some of those practices have died away, and that's what Sean wanted to bring back, which was so cool to me. I love, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier at the beginning of the episode, where we all have potential. There's potential in everybody. And Sean saw the potential in resurrecting these crops that had been staples in Southern culture. And he's like, we need to hang on to this. So he is at the the head chef at McCready's and he decides to open up another restaurant called Husk, which is such a cool name, you know, like the husk of a corn cob. One of the guys that was his friend, he said the concept behind it was, if it's not Southern, it's not walking in the door, which is so cool to me. Like, he's doing shrimp and grits. He's doing cornbread. There's a dish called, like, shucky beans or something, and okra, and it's just down-home Southern food, but elevated, which is really cool. So... Not only is he the head chef at McCready's, he's opened Husk. He said that he had opened a total of four restaurants in five years and that he was rocking and rolling until one day he tried to get out of bed and he had double vision. And he couldn't understand what was going on. Nothing was helping. And he decided to go to the Mayo Clinic and get tested. And he had a condition, he had developed this condition called myasthenia gravis, which is basically a neuromuscular disease that causes double vision, drooping eyelids, and it forced him to stop working. And it's degenerative. He said it was the first time in well over a decade that he didn't get up and go to work. And so he was forced to stop. But once the doctors had a name for it, they were able to treat him with some medicine. They said they gave him some pills, and he felt so much better. He said it felt so good to have a knife again and use it. And being able to cook, I had all these ideas stored up in my head, and I just couldn't do it. And he said shortly after that, he was driving to work, and his vision just snapped and went straight to double again. 
and he visited his doctors and he said that his condition had graduated into full body myasthenia gravis, which is scary beyond belief. He phrased it as that means you end up with tubes down your throat, like a vegetable, which is crazy. So he said he hit his lowest point after that time. He became an alcoholic and almost a recluse. His girlfriend was saying at the time that that he was in a deep, dark place to the point of he had an intervention that his girlfriend and two of his friends that he had worked with in the restaurant business came to his house and said, it's time to do an intervention. And he said, you know what? It was a sigh of relief seeing them at my door that day. And he said, you don't have to convince me to do anything. I'll go. And he went to rehab. And once he became clean and sober, he said that he would go outside and he said, I could hear the birds singing. It felt like I was awake for the first time in so long. And he said, you know, my extreme workaholism, yeah, it allowed me to grow as a chef. It allowed me to be successful, but it almost killed me. And that was when it clicked to him that he needed to slow down, control stress, control anxiety, and to just focus on what really matters. Yes, it's good to be passionate about some things, but it's not your whole life. There's so much more. So what can we learn from these three chefs? Three completely different stories, which is why I wanted to talk about these. Because they all three of them came from different backgrounds. And I came up with three points. Now, this is a faith-based leadership worldview that I'm speaking of. We're talking about through a lens of faith, right? And faith in Jesus Christ. So these three statements each have, have scripture to back them up. So here we go. First one is, there will always be struggles, but your response to them is crucial to your success. What would have happened if Christina had decided to just revolt when she couldn't get her green card? And just, oh, I'm just going to go back to Mexico or do something. She wouldn't have the success that she had. Same with Will, saying that he was the worst hire of the year. And what if he just decided to quit cooking altogether? And with Sean, when he got that disease, he could have said, well, I'll just, this is the end for me. No, their response was they persevered. Now, from a faith-based leadership worldview, we can look at James. James is very good at writing about practical faith. And in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Not if, it's whenever you do. So it's a guarantee. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. If there are no struggles, there is no growth. I'll say it again. If there are no struggles, there will be no growth. Struggles happen in order for you to grow and mature in your faith, in your job, in your work experience, whatever that may be. Struggles are not a sign of, oh, I'm doing something poorly or I'm doing something bad necessarily. They can, but if you're doing what you're supposed to and you're encountering struggle, it's a growing opportunity. Number two, work hard, 
but remember why. With Sean, extreme workaholism was very prevalent throughout his whole story, but he forgot why he fell in love with cooking in the first place. As a leader, we have to remember why we're working hard. And Paul writes to the church in Colossae, this is Colossians chapter 3, it's the second half of verse 22 through 24. He's really talking about the relationship between masters and slaves. But this could also be considered like employer to employee kind of conversation. He says, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. What's Paul saying there? It doesn't matter who's watching. You need to be consistent. But also remember, you're working for the Lord and not for men. That the Lord sees all your actions. Yeah, your boss may not see everything you do throughout your workday, but God does. So not only should you work hard, no matter who's watching, you should also work with integrity. And the third point is this. No matter what happens, rejoice. No matter what happens, rejoice. Philippians 4, verse 4, I love what Paul says here. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. In Jewish culture, anytime something was either said or written multiple times, they are really trying to emphasize this point. And that's what Paul is saying. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He also tells the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians excuse me, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And those are kind of like rapid fire verses. Rejoice always. Stop. Pray constantly. Stop. Give thanks in everything. Stop. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Because it's that important that we should rejoice, pray, and then be thankful. And that is the recipe for how we're supposed to deal with our struggles in this life. We're supposed to be rejoicing first and always. Second thing is to pray constantly. So this is assuming that you're already doing it too. So always be praying and then be thankful in everything. Even when bad things are happening. Even when you can't go back to see your family. Even if you get fired, even if you have a physical ailment that causes you to either lose your job or to take a step back and not perform in the same way that you once were. That is a recipe that any leader who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ can thrive in this world. God has given us all the tools that we need throughout Scripture to handle any circumstance, any sort of situation with our family, whether it's personal whether it's in the workplace, whatever it may be, you have the tool in your Bible. With that being said, as we're going into these next few weeks of uncertainty in our culture, I want you to rejoice always. (laughs) Rejoice that you have your health. And if you don't have your health right now, rejoice that you're still here. You know, there's the saying that if I'm not dead, God's not done. And that's true. So rejoice. Pray constantly. Pray for the world. 
Pray for our nation. There are people that are scared. There are people that are worried about how they're going to provide for their family because they've been laid off. Anytime your business or wherever you work are working at is deemed non-essential, it hits home. Just because your business or workplace has been deemed non-essential does not mean that you are non-essential. You are 100% essential to this world. You know why? Because God made you on purpose and with a purpose. And your purpose doesn't come from your job. Your purpose comes from the Lord. And He's going to use you whether you have the title that you have now or not. Think of this as a growing opportunity uh, for your faith and for true trust in the Lord to grow. He will provide for you. He will supply all your needs. You just have to trust Him. So rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. Be thankful that you have time with your family, even if it's weird, (laughs) even if you feel like you're going to be going crazy. Listen, y'all, I'm an extrovert, and I have three children between the ages of one and four. And in quarantine times, I go a little crazy. I wish y'all could see my eye twitching right now because it's tough, y'all. As an extrovert, I need people. And I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful that my parents live two doors down and that I'm still able to see them. And they're able to help us out by going to the grocery store if we need stuff. I'm thankful for that. But even if you are all alone, there is always something to be thankful for. You have a roof over your head. If you don't, you have breath in your lungs. That's something that only the Lord can take away, right? He gave it to you. So be thankful that you have another opportunity to do something incredible. hope that this encouraged you today. I hope you take time to watch Chef's Table. Literally, I, I kind of binge watch this. I have my favorite chefs that I like to watch. There's some other other ones on here that I wanted to give an honorable mention to, uh, like Christina Tozzi and Grant Acats and all, this, all these other incredible chefs. I will warn you, there is some profanity in this, so don't watch it around young kids. But it's just the stories is so incredible to listen to and it's it's real people who happen to make really good food so next time you're watching a show on netflix i want you to try and pick out some leadership aspects you really could pick out stuff from tiger king i'm not going to take the time to do that (laughs) but you could if you really wanted to and also i want to extend this challenge to you i know i haven't done a challenge of the month in a little while It is so crucial right now that people who their businesses are are open, particularly restaurants that have been hit hard, a lot of waitresses and waiters and hostesses and bartenders that are now out of work and don't really know what to do, they're struggling, y'all. So your challenge for this episode is to support local small business and restaurants. Whoever that may be, whether it's a friend of yours that has a boutique or someone that has a mom and pop little restaurant, whatever you can do to support them, you need to do it. 
if you have the means, if you do not need your stimulus check, don't go buy a flat screen TV. Don't buy a gaming console. You need to give it back to somebody who really does need it. I challenge you to do that. Pray about it first, about who you could give this to. Because, guys, if we give back to the Lord what He's already given us, He only multiplies. (laughs) I think about the five loaves and two fish, and He fed what they think was like thousands. Thousands of people from that. So what can He do with our little, what is it, $1,200 check or whatever that may be? Pray about it first, but give back to your community. If you are okay, if you have a job still, think about how you're going to spend that money before you actually do it. Is it going to be for selfish motives, or is it going to be something to bring joy to, to your community? Y'all, this is the most crucial time for us as a community of believers to show who the church really is. Let's take time to pray to rejoice always, to pray constantly, and give thanks, and watch what God can do in these crazy times that we're living in. Part two of this little trilogy coming up, I guess I'll give you a little lead-in of what it's going to be. It is another, I don't know if I want to call it a reality show. It kind of is. I guess it is. But it's going to be a fun one. And it has to do with food, too. You may know it, you may not. But yeah, it's a form of reality show having to do with food and delicious things that make me want to go to a bakery and eat something. So (laughs) tune in in a couple weeks to the next episode of this trilogy of Leadership Lessons from Netflix. I also want to encourage you, if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We've got... Um, both pages up and I like I like to send encouraging posts and scriptures and fun little things out and I'd love to to share that with you and start a dialogue also if you haven't already subscribe to the led to lead podcast on iTunes and you can also follow us on Spotify and Podbean and share this with a friend if you got somebody that loves Netflix or loves chef's table send this their way and let me know what you think And I love you guys. Tune in in a couple more weeks where we go into part two of the trilogy (laughs) of Leadership Lessons from Netflix.